Let's go ahead and get out our Bibles or your sheet in front of you, Numbers 21. This morning we're going to look at a story that is honestly a an odd story. And it's a strange story, and, and not that much of Moses' life was not strange, certainly on a lot of levels you could say that's different. But this is an odd story, and I, honestly I admit to you that really had Jesus not put so much emphasis on this story, I'm not sure that we would have picked it with our limited scope of something to study this morning. It's just a few verses. But what we're going to find is that Jesus sees this story as such an important part, just an important example of his ministry. And so the question really for you this morning is why? Why would Jesus do that? In some ways, our task today is to kind of pick up what we talked about at the very, very first, which is Moses, his role for Jesus was, he was a precursor, a forerunner. Now, there are many things about Jesus that are much different than Moses. Jesus was sinless. We've seen time and time again that Moses was definitely not sinless. We saw that last time. Uh, Jesus uh, died on a cross Moses died outside in the wilderness, never able to enter the promised land, right? There are differences, but we also see that there are certainly these deep similarities. Moses was the mediator, the mediator between God and his people, just as Jesus is still as he reigns and intercedes for us. And so what's interesting is Jesus, after his resurrection, he's on the road to Emmaus and he appears to his disciples and, and Luke records that Jesus began to teach them the Bible. I wonder what that must have been like, the resurrected Christ leading them in Bible study. But Luke tells us that Jesus began to teach them about himself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. In other words, Jesus views the entire Bible through the lens of himself. Now, that's different for us. I have a lot of people I meet with, especially a lot of men, and a lot of times they're trying to, they're struggling with reading the Bible, right? And, they, and they're reading the Bible and they say, well, I just don't see how this is relevant to my life. I don't see how this applies to me. And my answer is a little harsh, but it's true. And this is the answer I always give. The Bible's not about you. It's just not. The Bible's not about you directly. Now, certainly indirectly it is. But you're, you're never going to be able to go back in the concordance and just look up whatever's going on in your life and go to that particular psalm or passage in the Gospels or an epistle. That's not how the Bible works. The Bible's not about you. The Bible, from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus. That's what the Bible's about. And so it doesn't matter if you're in Genesis studying Abraham, as we will see this morning, or the book of Revelation... From start to finish, the Bible's about Jesus. Why do we believe that? Because Jesus told us that's what it's about. And this morning, we're going to look at the Bible through Jesus' eyes. A story that he saw was really about him. And it's an odd story. It's the story of the bronze serpent. So, Numbers 21, let's read it together. And then we'll dive right in. Numbers 21 will begin in verse 4. We're just looking at a few verses this morning. It's a short story. It says, From Mount Hor, the people of Israel set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. 
And the people became impatient on the way. Now, by now, this has become a theme, right? They've become impatient on the way, and the people spoke out against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? This should sound familiar to you. For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a certain bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we ask that you would be with us as we study the scriptures, that you would help us to see through the eyes of Christ, that we would learn something about our risen Savior this morning And this odd and peculiar story, a story that truly happened, but a story that was, yes, about Moses and about these people, but in in a huge way, it's also about us and about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so would you reveal these things to us, and may we leave this place changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel, Christ's death and resurrection, and his word given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Martin Luther, uh, on commenting on this particular story, really commented on all of it, really everything I just said. This is what he had to say. He said, the Lord shows us the proper method of interpreting Moses and all the prophets. He teaches us that Moses points and refers to Christ in all his stories and illustrations. His purpose is to show that Christ is the point at the center of a circle, with all eyes inside the circle focused on him, Whoever turns his eyes on Jesus finds his proper place in the circle of which Christ is the center. All stories of the Holy Writ, if viewed aright, point to Christ. That's Martin Luther. And so what we'll find this morning is through the eyes of Christ, seeing this story, really we're going to see four things about who we are and how we relate to God through Jesus Christ. The first is this. We're going to learn about the danger of sin. We've talked a lot about sin and studying Moses' life because Moses was certainly a sinner, and we saw that a couple weeks ago. But this morning, as we talk about sin, I want you to consider that sin is dangerous. Now, that might seem kind of provocative in a sort of certain way, but it's dangerous, certainly immoral, but I want you to understand the danger of sin. And we see this as we pick up the story in verse 4. The people... They're grumbling again. Uh, They're complaining. No food, no water. And as kind of been their custom, when their circumstances push them to the ends of themselves, rather than turning to God, they turn to themselves and they complain. And they complain against the Lord. They complain to the point of saying it was better for us to be slaves back in Egypt and to be where we are here in the wilderness left to die. They do not trust God. They have much doubt. They're plagued with unbelief. And it's interesting here in Numbers that it says that their complaint, their complaint is 
verse uh, 4 or verse 5, their complaint is against God and against Moses. So they're not just complaining against Moses, as we saw a couple weeks ago. It directly, Numbers is telling us, they're complaining against God. They are complaining against God. They are angry with Him. And so God's response to this kind of disbelief, this distrust, this anger, we see is incredibly wrathful. And there's a danger in sin. This is His response. It says this, verse 6, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Now, what you need to know about these serpents, fiery serpents, what does that mean? Were these kind of these spiritual serpents that were literally on fire that came in? I mean, it's possible. Uh, what's more likely is it's just describing the kind of snake that it was. Uh, that the word fiery is really just describing its pattern. So like a copperhead, right? This is a kind of snake that was known to be incredibly poisonous, and God sent these snakes to Israel to be a plague to them. Now, where have we heard that before? Egypt. But it wasn't on the people of Israel. Who did He do that to? I wonder what it must have been like for them. They would have remembered this, right? This isn't that long ago. They, they had witnessed these plagues fall upon Egypt... God sent His wrath upon Egypt, and now God has pointed His wrath on them. He has sent them a plague, a fiery serpent, to the point at which, verse 6 tells us that many people of Israel died. Sin is dangerous. It's dangerous. And it's dangerous really in two ways. When we talk about sin particularly as Presbyterians, we use a phrase, total depravity. Now, what do we mean by that, total depravity? Well, what we don't mean is that we are depraved um, to the uttermost. In other words, that every aspect is so depraved in us that we are as sinful as we could possibly be. That's actually not true. Because if we were as sinful as we could possibly be, then before Christ, every person on this planet would be nothing but literal murderers, right? But God in His common grace has not allowed that to happen. So what does total depravity actually mean? Well, it means that we are depraved totally, completely, every aspect of us. Every aspect. Every part of us is sinful. And every part of us is actually not just sinful, but it's affected by sin. Now, what do I mean by that? You recognize that sin actually affects you. That it's not just an outward thing, kind of the end of a progression. But sin has this way of actually affecting you too. That it infects you. That it actually, the more that you sin, the more that outwardly sin is coming from you, it's also coming back into you. It affects you. What do I mean by that? Well, if you think about total depravity, every aspect of us being sinful, what do, it affects our minds how we think. It affects our actions, affects our hearts. It affects our, our, our mental capacities. It affects our emotions. Right? It affects every part of us to where the more that we are in sin, the more that we are sinning, 
the more that every single thing that we do, think, act, speak, feel, it's sinful. And left in our sin, that sin continues to corrupt us. Totally. Every part. There is not a part of you that has not been affected by sin. That's what we mean, one aspect of total depravity. But the other aspect of total depravity, when we say that, is that you are a sinner who is totally unable to go to God on their own. Paul says in Ephesians that you are dead in your trespasses. You are totally depraved. There is no possible way for you as a sinner to go to God on your own. Why? Because you're not just sick, right? You're dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're dead in your trespasses of sins. And not only that, But Paul also says in Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. And then listen to this. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. A mind set on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. By total depravity, we mean that you as a human being, as a sinner, are so totally depraved that you have no ability to go to God. Period. So it affects every part of you, but also affects your relationship with Him. And this is what we see in Numbers, right? That these people are so plagued by their own sin that even though they have just witnessed some of the most miraculous things that any human has ever seen, With their own eyes, they witnessed God deliver them from Egypt through plagues, through the Red Sea. And now even miraculously, they're being given manna in the wilderness, literally food from the sky. And they're grumbling, they're complaining, they they don't even like it. Why? Because they are totally depraved. They are completely removed from God. They're looking through this lens of sin and they're looking at their circumstances and it affects their relationship with God to the point where they are going to to Him in anger, complaining about their life, complaining about their circumstances, and more than anything else, they doubt Him. They doubt His love for them. They doubt His care for for them. They doubt His promise for them. And so when you, when you think about, okay, well, then God's response is to send the fiery serpents. All right, God, was, was that fair? Was that warranted? And of course, his answer would be yes. Why? Because they've committed treason. They've committed treason. We saw this a couple weeks ago, but they've committed treason against his authority, his majesty, his provision, his promises. And so God sends His wrath. So here's the deal. I want you to understand sin is dangerous. It's dangerous in two ways. One, it affects you. It affects the way that you see the world. It affects the way that you see your life, your family, your role as a man, your role as a businessman. It affects you. But it's also dangerous because it changes the way that you relate to God. 
And lastly, it's dangerous because outside of Jesus Christ, if you are left in your sin, just like the people of Israel, you would be deserving of His wrath. Sin is dangerous. Incredibly so. Incredibly so. Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is what we see in verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people and many people of Israel died. Sin is incredibly dangerous. But not only do we learn this, but we also learn not only about our sin, but about the role of repentance. Look with me at verse 7. So what do the people do? They've been complaining. They've, They've kind of bowed up against God and His authority. They've demanded that something be different and God sends snakes to kill them. And so in verse 7, it says, The people come to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed, for the people. Here in verse 7, we learn a little bit about the role of repentance. What I want you to notice about the repentance of Israel in this moment, why did they repent? What else were they going to do? They were pushed completely to the end of themselves that really there was nothing left for them to do but repent. Now, Martin Luther, some of you are probably familiar, when he nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, the very first one, does anybody know what it was? This is what it was. The entire life of believers should be one of repentance. So for Luther, we're going to talk a lot about him today. It's just kind of worked out that way. But for Luther, he saw the entire life, the sum total of the Christian life, to be one of continual repentance, ongoing repentance, And I think what Luther was on to is that really repentance by design should be a grace in your life. A continual coming back to God because He wants you to come back to Him, even in the midst of your sin. One of my old pastors used to say it this way, those who truly understand grace can look at themselves in the mirror and can immediately go to Jesus in the midst of their sin. It's those who don't understand grace that think, well, I'm in the midst of this sin. I've got to first stop it, clean myself up, clean up my act, then I can go to Jesus. He said, no, if you really understand the power of the cross and the power of grace, in the midst of your sin, you will immediately turn to Jesus because only He has the power to help you withstand that temptation in that moment. The life of continual repentance was meant to be a grace in this moment. It was a grace, but what I want you to see is God had forced their hand. Every person on the planet will repent eventually. Eventually, they will turn to God. The question is, when will they do that? And will it be because God has a gracious offer of His Son to them? Or will it be because in the last days they are being judged? And God is about to give them His judgment, His wrath. Repentance is meant to be a grace in your life. And and my question for you and myself this morning is, what role does repentance have in your life? Is it as Martin Luther said, 
a life of continual repentance, a discipline that you practice, that you're constantly not just taking inventory of your sin and beating yourself up over it, but you are turning from your sin towards Jesus. What does repentance mean? Jesus, I mean, throughout the Gospels, constantly, constantly spoke of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. Repent, repent, repent. Really, you could say that his message was one of repentance. So what does repentance mean? Literally, it means to turn, to turn from your sin towards God. Many people, when they think of repentance, it's just half of it. Just turning from sin. Now, if you were with us last semester through the book of Romans, you know how utterly hopeless that is. That if you're going to sit here and I tell you, don't think about the color purple, what are you thinking about right now? Purple, right? The only solution is to think about a different color, orange. You can't just turn from your sin and think that that's going to work. Repentance is turning from your sin, but then turning to Jesus. Turning to the cross. Fixing your gaze so much on the cross of Christ that now your sin is completely in the rear view. That's complete turn. That is repentance. Here, this is what's happening in Numbers. They're turning from their sin and they're turning to the Lord and they're saying, please, rescue us. We recognize we have sinned. We sinned against you, Lord. We have sinned against Moses. We repent. We are turning to you. Please help us. Take these snakes from us. The Numbers tells us that Moses prayed for the people. He interceded. He acted as a mediator. Repentance is all about turning from God to Jesus, and it's meant to be a grace. Romans 2, verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's His grace that calls us to repent. But if you continue to presume upon His grace, as we studied last semester, to continue in sin that grace might abound, Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Is your life one of continual repentance? It's meant to be a grace. And we see this in the next thing we'll look at. It's the nature of our faith. So we learn about something about the danger of depravity, the role of repentance, but also the nature of our faith. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, Moses, because likely these snakes, perhaps they're kind of like a copperhead or something, they've got this pattern on them. He makes a serpent out of copper or bronze, and he puts it on a pole and sets it up like this in the midst of the people. And, and the Lord tells Moses that you set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten, when he sees this copper, bronze serpent, when he sees it, he shall live. Now what's interesting is the Hebrew Bible here uses two different words for see. And, and it's not just the idea of seeing and perceiving, like just kind of gazing, like I'm walking through the midst of the people and I happen to catch this bronze serpent because it's a giant Serpent made out of bronze on a pole, and that's kind of different. Didn't expect to see that, and I'm going to keep going. No, it's actually fixing your gaze on this serpent. 
It's fixing your gaze in such a way that it has captivated you. Right? It's paying attention, literally, in the Hebrew. Paying attention to this bronze serpent on a pole. There's something spiritual, almost, to this kind of seeing that the Lord suggests. And I would argue that this is faith. This is faith. God has asked the people to do something by faith that seems kind of odd. Look at this statue of a serpent on a pole, and if you do, you will live. But God, of course, had always been in the custom of asking His people to do things by faith. And one of the things I want you to wrestle with in your groups this morning is, what is faith, and why would God desire our faith? For us as Protestants, faith is a big deal, Right? We are saved, we would say, through faith alone, not by works. Faith is a big deal to us, but do we really understand it? And what faith is, what it does, particularly in our relationship to God, why would God desire our faith? Well, our faith is a trusting, causes us to trust God. Causes us to relate to Him in that way. And, and, and it's a specific kind of trusting. Faith has always been, beginning in Moses and all the prophets, trusting in the promises of God. That God has given us promises as His people. And our response to those promises is with faith. We call this the covenants. God has always related to His people through covenants. Covenant with Abraham. God comes to Abraham and He promises him offspring, so numerous that if you look towards the heavens and number the stars, so shall your offspring be. A land of an eternal possession, that you will be a blessing to the people, and I will bless you, that I will be your God, I will be with you, and you will be my people. The problem with this for Abraham was what? He couldn't have kids. And so what did he do? What did his wife do? They struggled with that. They looked at their circumstances and they said, God, how on earth are you going to give us offspring as numerous of the stars when we can't even have one child? And God comes to him again. He gives his promise again. And all the way back in Genesis, we are told that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul And Romans, reflecting back on this, Romans 4, No unbelief made him, that is Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. It could be a definition of faith for us, that you are fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised, and he has done it, men. He just celebrated it. He has fulfilled his promise in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written just for him, but for us as well. Isn't that amazing? That that's for you and for me. That if you believe, then your faith will be counted to you as righteousness as well. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
Faith is central to us. Just as God called on the people of Israel to fix their gaze on this fiery serpent, He has called us to fix our gaze on the cross and to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls. Do you believe? Do you understand how your belief works? Now, what's interesting about this story, think about it. These people, they've been wondering, they've been struggling, they have been... They've looked at this fiery serpent, and then many of them who have actually done this, that followed God's commands, they looked at the fiery serpent, they were healed. And as the story began to be told and be passed down, what do you think happened in the end? How do you think the story got passed down? How do you think they looked back on this event? Who do you think they gave the credit to? Not Moses. The serpent. They even gave it a name. They turned the serpent into an idol. (laughs) God had delivered them in this moment, and as the story began to be passed down, they became so confused that their faith became misplaced to the point where they gave the bronze serpent a name, and they worshipped the serpent not the God who delivered them through the serpent. Second Kings verse, uh, 18, verse 4. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. They gave it a name, They bowed down before it and they worshipped it rather than the God who delivered them through it. And just like them, our faith can be misplaced as well. One of the most practical ways that I often see this is when people talk about faith. Now this is going to be a little bit provocative perhaps this morning and maybe it's a little too early for this. A lot of times I hear people say, we are saved by faith. We are saved by faith. What is wrong with that statement? What is wrong with that sentence? That's right. We are saved by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. By by His grace. And the Bible is very clear in Ephesians 2. Through faith. Now oftentimes, we can turn, even as good Protestants, we can turn our faith into a work. What do I mean by that? That if you can repeat the right things, say the right things, believe the right things, then I will let you into my heaven. You are not saved by faith. You are saved through faith. No, you are saved by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, period. His death purchased you. He bore your sins in His body on the tree that you might live. You are saved by Jesus Christ. Faith is this gift that He's given us that we can enter into this promise. New eyes for dead souls that we could actually perceive what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So this morning, again, the question I want you to wrestle with at your table is, what's faith? Is it possible that our faith at times can be misplaced? 
their faith was misplaced. They turned an idol out of the gift of God. We can do the exact same thing. Is your faith in God alone? And do you trust in Him alone for your salvation? That Jesus Christ died and rose again. And as a man of faith, do you now walk with Him, trusting in Him, and continual repentance, recognizing that your sin is dangerous and that you need deliverance? Which brings us to our end this morning as you go to your tables. I want you to turn to John chapter 3, and this is where I'm going to leave you. At the end of the story, it says, Moses made a bronze serpent, he set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It's interesting that as John records that Jesus, as he's talking with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is struggling with doubt, struggling with, what, what does it mean to become a Christian? What does it mean to be born again? You remember the story? He's trying to figure out what does it mean to be born again. No one can be born again. And Jesus is telling him about what it means to be born again, what it means to believe. And in verse 9, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can this be? How can be what you're saying? That if you believe in in you and believe and trust in God, that you're going to be born again. And this is what Jesus says. He says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Martin Luther said this, In this serpent God prefigured his own son for the people of Israel. He was to assume the form of an accursed and damned man, yes, of a serpent, to become the Savior of the world. Just as God in the wilderness lifted up this symbol of death and asked that the people get, fix their eyes on this symbol, and through that God would rescue them, God has sent us His Son, Jesus Christ, who is lifted up in our wilderness, high up on the cross, that all those who would fix their eyes in faith on Him would be saved. And so I leave you with that this morning. Why would Jesus pick this story of all stories? And what does this story teach us about our Savior? He who knew no sin would become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, we ask that you would give us the eyes that Jesus had for his scriptures, recognizing that all of these stories point to him. And not only that this morning, but we recognize that your word is given to us, that it might pierce us through, that it might reveal those places in us that are still sinful, that are leading us to dangerous places. Enable us by the power of the Holy Spirit to cultivate a life of repentance. That we might turn from our sin to you to fix our eyes on you, God, and your son, Jesus, on his cross. To recognize what you've done for us and to trust through faith in those promises. That what you have given to us, that you've purchased our very souls on the cross, might be so true for us. 
and that we would be redeemed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.